So, let's launch right into this series, Unseen Reality. As I said last week, as a way of recap, this is the New Testament's version of Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia. This is theology, but in the weird and wonderful world of red dragons and beasts with seven heads and lakes of fire and rivers of blood and lambs with seven eyes. You guys look terrified, um, but I can tell you it is absolutely stunning. We said last week that there's two tasks of apocalyptic literature. The word apocalypse literally means Revelation. If you've spent a lot of time on Netflix, you might think it's just kind of zombies being killed. But actually, it means like an unveiling. This is Jesus like pulling the curtains back. So two purposes of apocalyptic literature. One, to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. What is to come? How do we live now in light of what's to come? But there's a second purpose, which is perhaps even more important, is setting the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. So Jesus says to John, pull back the curtain so you can see what's happening on the world stage. Like open up the bonnet so you can see what's happening with the engine. This is Jesus saying to John, I'm going to open up the door so you can see into the spiritual realm and understand this moment with a greater measure of clarity. So what is the revelation about? Well, the first five words of the book give it away. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, his character, his nature, and what he's doing right now. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. Now, these are seven churches that actually existed. So Jesus was speaking a message to them in the first century of how to pursue his kingdom purposes. But the number seven is significant. It's the number of completeness. In other words, these letters are to every church, in every age, in every context. Yes, this letter was to the church in Ephesus, but it's to us in King's Cross in the 21st century, right? So we can lean in right now and allow Jesus to pull back the curtain and show us what's really going on in our cultural moment. So let me just sort of give you a bit of context for this first letter. And then over the next seven weeks, we're going to work through the seven letters, starting then with Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, you had Alexandria in North Africa, you had Antioch in Syria, and then you had Ephesus, a major urban centre known as a centre of finance and business. People constantly coming in and out of the city to buy, sell and to trade. But more than a centre of finance and business, it was a centre of entertainment and culture. It hosted the Pan-Ionian Games. I can sense the excitement. That was the second biggest sporting event behind the Olympics in Athens. People constantly coming to the city for culture, for entertainment. But more than that, it was a centre of worship. There was this huge temple there to the goddess Artemis, her Roman name Diana. She was the goddess of fertility, the embodiment of sexual lust. Her nickname was the multi-breasted one. I'm going to show you an image now. Just calm down, Phil. There we go. A slight disappointment, I know. Like Her nose is, has fallen off, her fingers have gone missing, but this is a pretty old statue of the goddess Artemis, the multi-breasted one. 
Now, her worship was associated with cult prostitution and other bizarre sexual practices, but the temple there was phenomenal, the size of two football pitches. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The point is, people were constantly traveling to Ephesus, wowed by the center of business, the center of culture and entertainment, a center of worship, a deeply formative City, right? A little bit like the city of London. What about the church in Ephesus then? Planted by the Apostle Paul with the help of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Paul eventually gets thrown out of the city with some riots that took place. I'll explain that later. He's eventually beheaded in Rome. So you can take Paul out of the equation. Who leads it next? And the answer is Timothy, the mentee of the Apostle Paul. He's eventually murdered because of the persecution of Christians. You can take Timothy out. And then the Apostle John takes on the leadership. Here's a fun fact. When John was leading the church, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of the congregation. How cool would that have been? To have Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the congregation. Uh, Imagine carol services. I mean, that would have been amazing, right? Mary, did you know, serious question, that your baby boy would one day walk on water. Did you? Did you? Mary, did you know? I mean, that would have been amazing, right? Carol services with Mary, the mother of Jesus, on the front row. I love it. Um, But as we know from last week, John refused to bow the knee and worship the emperor Domitian, so he's exiled to the island of Patmos, so you can take John out of the equation. This is a church that knew that discipleship that costs nothing is worth precisely that. There was heavy persecution, but they stood firm. They were faithful to Jesus. And because of that, the church kept growing. It kept growing. And by the time of John writing this letter, AD 96, Ephesus was the center, the global center of Christianity. It had moved from Jerusalem to Antioch and now to Ephesus. So Jesus speaking a word, a letter to the center of the Christian church. This is of huge significance, right? This is a moment for us to lean in. Lord, what were you saying to them so that we can do the work of translation? What would you want to say to us 2,000 years later in another urban center here in London? Now, the form of the letter, it starts with encouragement, then you have a challenge, and then parts three and four really go together, an invitation that leads to blessing. So this is like a sandwich, three parts, encouragement, challenge, and then more encouragement. What do they call sandwiches when you've got that? Um, I forgot what the, I'm obviously joking. I know what they call that kind of sandwich. I thought that might go down better. Anyway, so this is encouragement, a challenge, followed with a pathway to blessing. So Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. I know your good deeds. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I want to highlight three things that are remarkable about the church in Ephesus. If this is an appraisal of the church, the opening of the letter, you can imagine them thinking, yes, we are bossing it. If this is like an Ofsted inspection for the early church, the guys in Ephesus would have been like, we're doing pretty well. Have you seen what Jesus says about us in Ephesus? Um, Three things then. Number one, orthodoxy, which is right belief that leads to orthopraxy, right behavior, like right deeds. 
orthodoxy, right belief. They're in a major urban center with lots of competing worldviews. But Jesus says, you've held on to orthodoxy. Listen to this then. When Paul had spent two or three years there, he eventually has to leave. And there's this heartbreaking account where he says goodbye um, in Acts chapter 20. There's lots of tears. And then he says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves, in other words, false teachers, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. They're going to go after the church in Ephesus. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Those are the parting words of Paul. They took them seriously. So they held on to right belief with all these pressures to let go. And that right belief led to right deeds. This church was doing the stuff of the kingdom like Here's the second thing that's amazing. They pursued holiness and they pursued justice together. So listen to this account. This is Acts 19. When Paul was ministering in Ephesus, he was operating in such power that people would get their handkerchiefs. They would sort of touch Paul from a distance if they could, like a waft of their handkerchief. If it touched Paul, they would then take the handkerchief to the sick. And as they touched the sick with the handkerchief, people were healed. There's historical accounts of this taking place. And you can imagine Ephesus, people talking. Have you heard about Paul and the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit at work in his ministry? So listen to what it says in Acts 19, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Such was their desire for holiness. They were coming and basically saying, I've done all these things. I want to get right with Jesus. Like how amazing is that? It's like a holiness movement. A number of them who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. This is a public demonstration of repentance turning to Jesus. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's a huge amount of money. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Like this holiness movement. And everyone was talking about it. And in Ephesus, the church was known for sexual purity. In a city of Artemis, of sexual promiscuity, they stood out. They were intolerant of wickedness, right? So they were known for their holiness, but more than that, they were known for their justice. There was a practice in Ephesus, and it extended beyond the Roman Empire, called exposing. That wasn't getting naked. Basically, when a child was born, the father would look upon the child... And if the child had any disability or blemish or looked weak or was of the wrong sex, the father could say, and how evil is this? Discard it. Take it away. And what they'd have to do is take the baby away. They would take it outside of the city gates. There'd be a a hillside set apart for this. And they would leave the baby at the bottom of the hill to be exposed to the elements. Most of the babies would die of hyperthermia. Some of the babies would be attacked by wild dogs and and shredded. Other babies would be taken by slave traders and raised to become sex slaves. I mean, this is evil beyond what you can get your head around. And yet the Christians were known for leaving the city, going to the hillsides, picking up the babies and rescuing them and adopting them, not as slaves in their households, but as sons and daughters. The church in Ephesus was known for radical hospitality and radical kingdom compassion. That's amazing, right? Isn't that incredible? Like there's a danger 
that in our day, there's a separation between holiness and justice. We care about justice, but there's a disregard for personal holiness. An example would be the Me Too campaign, right? An amazing campaign, but at the time the Me Too campaign hit its prominence, the number one best-selling book globally was Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Outwardly, we want a campaign, but what we do in our own homes, well, that doesn't really matter, it's different. And yet the flames that exist in the human heart, they cause the wildfires of injustice that we see in the surrounding culture. There's a gap today in the church between a passion for holiness and a passion for justice. But in Ephesus, it wasn't the case. They knew that holiness leads to kingdom justice. It's like, wow, this church is doing well. Thirdly, they were known for their willingness to suffer and endure. You know, the, the word passion, we say this regularly at KXE, the Latin verb is passio, meaning to suffer. Easter week is called Passion Week because of the sufferings of Christ. When you say you're passionate about dot, 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 you basically are saying, I believe so much in it that I'd willingly suffer for the cause. If you're a passionate Arsenal FC fan, then you're willing and actually suffering right now for the cause, right? Well, this church in Ephesus, they were willing to suffer for the message of the gospel. Jesus says, you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name. So as a report card, it's pretty good, right? Orthodoxy, like leading to orthopraxy, right belief leading to right action, holiness, passion for justice, willingness to suffer. The summary would be they are passionate about the kingdom, right? That's amazing. You can imagine them thinking, this is good. I'm enjoying this letter. And then comes the middle layer of the sandwich. Right. Yet, but I hold this one thing against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. The Greek word forsaken literally means to leave behind. You're doing all the right stuff. It genuinely is incredible. And yet you've left your first love behind. Now remember, this is the congregation where Mary used to worship. I'm sure Mary told them stories of Jesus as a kid, what he was like as a toddler, and maybe you know, the teenage years. They probably knew more than the most of the, of the life of Jesus. So they'd have probably known this story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Now, if you're a parent and you've had some parenting fails in lockdown, I really have myself. I haven't lost one of my kids for a day, right? So I I feel slightly good about myself. I've lost them. You know, every so often, not for a day. It it gets worse. They then began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they lost a 12-year-old kid for three days. I mean, that is a parenting fail beyond parenting fails. And eventually they find him. Key verse there, thinking he was in their company. Right? Just presumed, well, Jesus will be with us, right? How many of you right now just presume... Jesus is with you right now. The sense that you, like, you've chosen your own path. I just, I just presume Jesus was in my company. Here's the promise of Jesus, right? That he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But he gives us free will so we can leave him behind and just walk away from him. It happens incrementally. And I don't know about you, but coming out of lockdown, there's moments I'm like, I feel like I might have left Jesus behind. I'm experiencing less intimacy. 
I just presumed he was in my company. I just presumed he was with me. That happened to Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, this is the first and greatest commandment, right? To stay in the presence of Jesus, to love God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. The second one is to love your neighbor. And then everything else in the law and prophets flows from getting this fundamental in place. Love God. Stay in his company. Just check that you're constantly with him. This is why Augustine said, love God and do whatever you like. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. In other words, just make sure your priority in all things is to love Jesus and to enjoy his company. This is the basis of the Ten Commandments, right? The first three of the commandments are about loving God. Like, don't have other gods. Don't make images and bow down to them. Don't misuse the the name of the Lord. And then you've got the other seven, right? But the basis is love God. Everything else will flow. If you neglect the first three, what you end up with is duty devoid of joy. Your faith becomes mechanical, right? Who's been there? Who's there right now? And the honest answer is, I've spent a bit of time there during lockdown. I'm just going through the motions and it feels like duty and duty has a place in the Christian life. But I'm aware there's moments where I'm like, I don't feel much joy. Maybe it's because I might have left Jesus behind. I just started doing loads of things that I thought were really good, but I wasn't spending time in his presence. Here's a summary of the great commandment. Love God and you get the kingdom right. But as we regularly say at KXC, misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. You only need to be sort of five, ten degrees off, like north compass, north on the compass, and things begin to go wrong. Now, where were the church in Ephesus going wrong? And the answer is activity. They'd become hyperactive. Can you relate to that? This is one of the challenges in London, where we idolise productivity, and therefore we engage in hyperactivity, Right? We want the output to be fruitfulness, like being productive. The input is like, we've got to be really busy. And we define ourselves by how busy we are. How are you doing? Incredibly busy. Like, if we were to have a competition, I would be busier. Because even though I haven't been out of the house for about a year, I've just been extraordinarily busy. That's how we mark how we're doing in life. And the thing is, if you just engage in hyperactivity, you're doing it because you want to live a fruitful life. But what you find out, rather than being fruitful, you end up totally exhausted. This is how it works. Misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives, right? And Jesus says, well, there is actually a pathway to fruitfulness, and it's not hyperactivity, right? I'm just so busy. I'm incredibly busy, just so important. He says, there is another path, and it's actually abiding, right? John 15, we did a series on this. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, abide in me, live in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Here's the key, not hyperactivity like in Ephesus, not hyperactivity like in the city of London, abiding dwelling, resting, intimacy with Jesus. The message to the church in Ephesus is activity has robbed you of intimacy. Now, before we went into lockdown, it feels like a decade ago, before we went into lockdown, B and I spent three months on sabbatical. We'd done 10 years of ministry at KXC. Um, We were emotionally, physically, spiritually spent and had three months of rest. Now, what happens when you have a deep rest is you get in touch with how you're really doing because your soul comes to a point of like a a kind of stillness and you can just see things more clearly. And and honestly, this was the revelation on sabbatical. I've been working so hard. I just presumed it was all in the presence of Jesus. 
but I think I just carried on walking and maybe left him behind and I don't feel some of that intimacy that I felt at first. And the three months of sabbatical were about rest and finding intimacy with Jesus because it's the key to everything. It's the first and greatest commandment. The summary for the church in Ephesus is that, yes, you're passionate about the kingdom. Tick, great job. But you've lost passion for the king. Passionate about the kingdom, neglected pursuit of the king. And the summary of that would be, you've settled for the kingdom without the king. Which is the temptation of the church in every age. Temptation for the church in Ephesus. Temptation for the church right now. And when secular thinking infiltrates the church, we begin to die. We begin to lose the fire, right? And what happens is is the secular world around us, they want the fruit of the... Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian worldview, they just want to chop down the tree. They want the kingdom activity and the values of the kingdom, but they, they want to get rid of the king. And what happens is the secular world begins to redefine key biblical principles. I'll just give you some examples, like freedom. We, we hear people talk about freedom, and we're like, oh, that must be the Bible. That, that must be a biblical vision. We don't realize that maybe there's a redefinition, a reframing of freedom. What's the biblical vision of freedom? Living within the parameters that God sets so that we can live life fully. How does secular society define freedom? The answer is autonomy. Auto, self, nomos, law. We're all a law unto ourselves. Get rid of any restrictions. That's true freedom. And we begin to embrace that in the church. What about justice? Justice is about righteousness, biblically speaking. Living according to God's plan for human flourishing, how he defines right and wrong. But in the the secular society, right and wrong gets defined by the context, right? by the city that you find yourself and suddenly people are talking about justice and we presume that must be scriptural but there's a a redefinition and a reframing of justice. What about love? Biblical understanding of love is like laying down your life for your friends and for your enemies, right? And there's a secular reframing. Like to love someone is to agree. You can't disagree with them and love them at the same time. And suddenly when that thinking infiltrates the church, the church begins to lose life. Um, Daryl Johnson in his commentary on Revelation says this, where simple love for Jesus goes, so does the light. So does the light. And he's really quoting from verse 5. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, which is an image for the church. The church will cease to exist, right? Now, this kind of sounds hardcore and pretty harsh. You need to know this about judgment in the New Testament. The primary form of judgment in the New Testament is God handing people over to their desires. You see that in Romans 1. It isn't, if you do wrong, I'm going to press the smite button and poof, you're gone. It's not like that. God basically says, I love you, but I give you free will. If you walk away from me, I'm going to let you do that. But as you walk away from life, you're going to begin to experience death. This is Jesus saying to the church, you're free to walk in that direction, right? But you need to know if you keep walking, if you keep walking, the church in Ephesus won't exist anymore, right? It's a terrifying thought. And if you look at the decline of the church in the Western world and here in the UK, one of the conclusions would probably be we've just begun to walk away. We presume Jesus was with us. I thought he was in our company. Terrifying thought. What's the remedy? Jesus says this, consider how far you've fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. Three very simple steps. Recognize, repent, repeat. Recognize. This is the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? The AA. Is you recognize, I actually need help. Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen. In other words, 
he's back in Jerusalem, or I've just left him behind. Recognize your current condition. Number one, two, repent, which means to turn around. The Greek word metanoia. Meta meaning to turn or around. And noia, Greek word from which we get gnosis or knowledge. Change your knowledge. Turn around your knowledge. In other words, change your thinking. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is here right now. In other words, turn around your thinking about the kingdom. Because I'm demonstrating to you that the kingdom of God is coming right now in my ministry. Like, get on track with your thinking. I think Jesus would say to us in London in the 21st century, like, turn your thinking around. You've been embracing these secular narratives. And you've just thought they were biblical. They're not. Turn your thinking. Turn back to me. And then do the things you did at first. What did the church in Ephesus do at first? What do you do at first when you fall in love? And the answer is, with the person that you're in love with, you want to spend all the time with them, right? Not some of the time, like all the time. When B and I got together, we'd spend pretty much all day together. Then one of us would drive home, and before bed, we'd phone each other, even though we just spent the whole day together. And you'd be on the phone, and it would go on phrasing there, you put the phone down. No, you put the phone down. No, 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 you put the phone down. And someone listening back, I'm just, just put the phone down. Just put the phone down, right? You just want to spend all your time together. Jesus is like, do you remember when you first came to faith, you just want to spend a lot of time in my presence? Like, when did that change? When did that change? Recognize, repent, repeat. And Jesus says, for those that do that, whoever is ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, in other words, the one who's obedient and, and stays on track, I'll give them the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right? This is the tree at the center of Eden, where humanity were fully alive. This is the tree present in Revelation 21, 22 at the, the sort of center of the new Jerusalem, heaven on earth. And, and Jesus says to the one who's victorious, you'll be able to eat from that tree. In other words, you won't incrementally die and sort of blend into the darkness. You will come alive and shine brightly. Here's my final thought then. Who's, who's writing this? The Apostle John. Let's just remind ourselves of, of John then. So in the journey towards the cross, at the Passover meal. What's John doing? This is the John who described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Notice that. Not the disciple who loved Jesus a lot, but the disciple that knew he was actually really loved. And at that kind of last supper, we find John leaning his head on the chest of Jesus, a posture of phenomenal intimacy, right? That's the last supper. And then you have the journey towards the cross and all the disciples fall away. Like Judas betrays Jesus, Peter disowns him, all the other disciples go hiding, you know, trying to flee, look after number one. There's one of the disciples left at the cross. Do you know who it is? It's John. First one leaning. It's always the last one standing. It's the first one leaning, always the last one standing, right? And, and I think John would be saying to the church in Ephesus, like, I learned the key. Like, if you want to be faithful, the key is intimacy. And here's the key to intimacy. Let Jesus love you. It's not about trying really hard to love God. Let him love you. It's the same apostle that wrote these words. We love because he first loved us. If you let Jesus love you, your love will be awakened and you'll begin to love him back and that is the foundation for everything. The first one leaning is the last one standing.